Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your schizoid host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have Brandon Polanco joining us. Brandon is a, should we call you a, do you consider yourself like, do you want to be a Texas filmmaker or Austin filmmaker? What, uh, what do you want to go with? I will go with an what Aust- feels right. An Austin filmmaker. All right, I'm down with that. Yeah. So um, Brandon is an, an independent Austin filmmaker, has worked in the business a little bit. Um, he's actually right now in post-production for his feature. And uh, Brandon, I'm going to go ahead and, and turn it over to you, man. Let's let's start out. Uh, give us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about your story, your personal story, and maybe a little bit about um, some work you've done in the past, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, man. Um, well, I want to say thank you to you and for bringing me on to this podcast first and foremost, you know, being able to kind of find a space to be able to talk about the work you're creating is really important to me. So, um, you know, I mean, my story is kind of still evolving as it goes on. And <laughs> I'm at 30 years old now and living in Austin, Texas, which is where I'm from originally. I was born and raised here. My family still lives here. And um my unique journey kind of always started off with me wanting to leave Austin when I was younger. Um, growing up in Austin, um, having gone to school here, I went to Better Check Middle School where they shot Dazed and Confused <laughs> at. Nice. Um, I was went to high school out in Buda at Hayes High School. So, um, you know, Texas has been very much my formidable years. But um, it ultimately kind of changed when I was looking for colleges and needing to just get away from Austin because it was too familiar. I needed to explore myself and explore the things that I was wanting to do. And at the time, the thing that was the most present was theater. I was always a kid in school that wanted to be an artist. I kind of just knew. Like, I didn't need to question what that art was. I needed to explore many mediums. I was in band, I played trumpet, I played baritone, I was in choir um, because I wanted to be able to maybe see if I could do musical theaters. Um, And then ultimately I kind of made a choice. And um, that choice kind of has always been what defined me, which has been, to put it the best way, what my mom says, I beat to my own drum. I have kind of had to walk my own path and kind of carve it out. Um, I think a lot of people that talk about success and that talk about your your path ultimately have to do the same thing, which is carving it out. And, and some others maybe have more connections, but I was kind of born into a very middle class family and being who I was, born with a vision and knowing that I had to be an artist was kind of hard because I didn't have as many access to things that got me into certain rooms to be able to make the quick connections or be able to be taught by parents that were other artists that like, this is how you can do it, or this is a path. So a lot of those years were really hard. I kind of consider them, and I, and I think up till maybe even last year, uh, the, the 29 years of my life was really getting out of my Plato's cave. <laughs> nice. um, you know, understanding the shadows, stepping into the light, wanting to go back to the ignorance of the shadows and say, I don't know, (laughs) to then understanding that what I was needing to do was really kind of break my own self-consciousness to be able to explore that. And so um, I went to Stephen F. Austin State University. I was accepted to a few other universities, but my parents said that they would pay for my college, but they didn't have the money for me to get. I got into like film school at DePaul University, but I got no scholarships. And 
at that time I knew I wanted to go into film, but I had been doing theater for so long. Like I, I did my first play when I was eight years old. Theater, acting, and directing was so of myself. It was my soul. It was who I was. It's, it was, it was kind of my my first language of storytelling. Um, but what changed for me was um, I wanted to be able to appease my father. He wanted me to go get a college degree because he hadn't he didn't have a college degree. And he was like, I really want you to do this. So I decided to go to college. And I got a theater degree at Stephen F. Austin State University because in the program as Bachelor of Fine Arts, I was able to go live in Europe. And I went and studied in London. And that was in my final year, my fourth year in college. For me, college was a it was a checklist. I enjoyed it. I had really amazing friends. I loved learning about theater. I loved learning about direction and the creativity of telling stories through the body and through the word. But um, for me, it was about getting overseas. So that's why I went to go to East Texas in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> literally the middle of nowhere. Don't get me wrong. I love you, Nakajoshis. I love you, Stephen F. Austin, but you are literally in the middle of nowhere. Naka nowhere, right? Naka nowhere, exactly. It is beautiful out there. It's piney trees. It's um, a great liberal arts school if you need to be in a liberal bubble to be able to explore the safety of making art, but not really understanding what it is that you're doing. You're not living in the main big cities where there's too many distractions. You're just kind of like maybe distracted by too many parties. <laughs> so um, I, I spent my time in college. I lived in London. I got into the program there at Rosa Bruford College was where I studied. And I studied European theater arts. So. In America, I was studying traditional theater, traditional movement. Um, the most exploratory in my movement practice was Laban, which is all about kind of point recognition, um, movement through different types of forces. You know, you would flick or you would wring out things moving and twisting your body to, um, you know, stomping and just really articulating movement in some force matter kind of instruction of note. And... Um, I always loved movement. Movement was really exciting. So to be able to go study European theater arts was about extremely learning about nothing but movement. So it was like, take away the text. Let's not worry about telling stories. Let's tell movement and make stories out of movement. And so I got to live in London. And that was probably one of the most important cornerstones in my life because part of that program allowed me to also live in Spain. And so I lived in Madrid, and I went to the Royal School of Drama in Madrid, and I studied Teatro Gestual, which is theater gesture. Now all my classes were in Spanish. I kind of fibbed. I told <laughs> the board that I knew Spanish, but I had like a layman's term Spanish. I, I'm born and raised here in Austin. My parents are Mexican-American. They speak Spanish. My grandparents spoke Spanish, but for some reason, they decided that I was fourth generation American and that I would learn it in school if I wanted to. So I never had those roots. Um, but I wanted to go live in Spain and I really, really wanted to, to train in Madrid because it was a five month program. And training there and training in London is part of the reason why I think I became who I became. Um, that happened in 2008 and 2009. It was right around Obama getting elected. It was a big changing year for me. I was about to end college. I was living in Spain. I was 
exploring myself, my sexuality. I always knew I was gay, but I had taken a long time to really understand that. It wasn't until I was 22 that I really came out. Um, I grew up very Catholic um, here in my with my family. It was very Hispanic, so there was a lot of uh, hard times with trying to discover that and discover my sexuality. I think my sexuality, it's not very prevalent in my work, but it's definitely prevalent in... Um, needing to be able to find the balance to be able to explore the work that I do now. And so that, that time, and I think ultimately living in Europe really defined who I was going to become, because as soon as I came back, I left Austin. I was back from school. I graduated. I spent six months here, and I moved straight to New York City. I was like, I'm out. I love this town, but this is not where I want to be. And so I spent five and a half years in New York City. And those years are the next chapter of... <laughs> how I was able to start doing the things I did. And they were hard. They were not very easy years. They were very amazing years in the sense that it's living in New York City. I enjoyed it. Um, I worked my ass off all the time. I was never not working. I was, I mean, I don't think, I don't know how to live in New York City and not work. Like, <laughs> I think you can live in other places and figure out how not to work. But like New York City, it's like you could still have all the money in the world and live in New York City, but the energy there is to work. You're like a, you're like an ant, building your like piece of this big hive of just everyone's there working, and some people get in each other's ways, but for the most <laughs> part, you really try not to get in each other's way because everybody's doing whatever the hell they have to do, and I think that that model because of the ignorance of being young at the time and not really understanding life to an extent of like my passion was perfect. It was a training ground to be able to explore myself, but put myself in a place of survival that I had to survive. I had to thrive and I had to start figuring out how to make art. And literally in the words of Carrie Fisher, I took a broken heart and I made art is what <laughs> I did. And I'm started making movies. I, in 2011, I mean, yeah, 2011, um, I was heartbroken, depressed. I had been on and off again dating this person that was just not a good person in my life and was taking me through the ringer. And I had nothing else to do. I had nothing else to give. And then I realized I did have something to give, and I wrote a film. And um, this producer is a friend of mine. He lives in New York. His name's Tio Louis. Oh, that's what he goes by. He's everyone's Latino uncle. <laughs> um, he works as an independent um, documentary producer. And he was one of the first people that I'd met because working in Austin, I'd worked with the, a, a Latino theater company called Teatro Vivo. And they got me in contact with him. And he knew me as a person coming out to New York City to become an actor. And he kept encouraging me to just explore film if I wanted to. And because of his encouragement and my ability to write a short film, uh, I made a short film that summer. And it really, I could say, changed my life making that film. I found a person to shoot my film. He was from UT. His name was Aaron Segura. He was a DP. He had just moved to New York City. He had a camera. And he went to film school. I did not go to film school at all. So I was just like, I know I love movies and I know how to tell <laughs> stories. I don't know how I'm going to make a movie, but I figured it out. It really, honestly, though, I have to say, like, I don't recommend if you, um, 
I don't recommend anybody getting into film unless they truly know how to do it. And the only reason why I say that is that you don't have to go to school for it, nor do you have to know a textbook. But I'm one of those lucky ones that I do believe that, like, whether it was the universe or just pure ignorance, I was able to figure it out or it was always inside of me. And that was able to unfold. I don't think everybody has that. And I think it's taken me a while to understand that. That doesn't mean that's that's why I, it's why I encourage people to go to film school if they want to go to film school. But you don't have to go to film school. You just have to be able to teach yourself how to tell a story through images in film. And I did that. And those years in New York City are what defined me being able to make a web series. I was able to encourage myself in 2013 to put out a movie with Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad that I wrote and directed called Writer's Block. 2014, I took a short film to the Cannes Film Festival. In 2015, I made another short film called Alchemy, um, and that went to 100-plus film festivals. And all of that came to accordance with why in the fall of 2015, we moved here, my fiancé now, at the time, and was just my boyfriend, but we took a leap of faith to come to Austin to be able to now take all of this work and craft that had been germinating and really put it to a test. And the funny thing is, is that I think in living in New York City, I really thought I was testing myself, but I didn't really test myself until I came here to Austin. Because the thing about New York City was that I was just another writer, another person telling stories. And and believe me, that does not discourage anybody that is a New York writer. Anybody to tell that story is important. But you become part of the microcosm of people living in apartments and living that New York life. And we all tell those stories and they're universal. But I wanted to come tell stories about living in Austin. And the thing about Austin is that it's a great town, but it's a very you have to be self-sufficient. There's not enough hooks in enough avenues to make enough connections with people that are going to help open those doors because ultimately you're having to build the doors right now in Austin. And um, I wouldn't, ha- I don't think if I had stayed in Austin, I would be where I'm at today because ultimately living in New York City gave me so much training and living in Europe and this whole journey of really having to learn how to carve my path and transform myself is why I'm here now. And it's because. I've become a different person. I've become able to understand my voice. But it literally has taken me 30 years to begin to tap into truly understanding that voice. And I expect the next 10 years to be completely, by the end of when I'm 40, I will hopefully have a whole nother um, cadre of answers to say, <laughs> this is what my voice now is. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my life and my story. It's been a sense of kind of walking through the shadows, not really always understanding, to always working, never not working, never not creating, and and really always telling some type of story, whether it's the movie or really just writing in my journal. And, um, you know, I think ultimately, like, what encourages me is that, like, having the knowledge to know when you can just believe in it. And I've never not stopped believing I get tested, and it's very hard, but belief has really been able to keep me going through all these years. Nice. I just have to say that was fire that you just dropped, man. That was that was great. That was really beautiful. Um, story. I'm gonna pause this real quick because I I forget that I have this uh, dryer running, and I don't want that thing. To... All right, we're rolling again.
So one kind of cool thing, I think it's actually kind of ironic that we met in New York. The literally the last time that I visited New York and I think February of like 2012 or something, which is just a funny like coincidence, right? Like, that <laughs> I, was so, so strange. You know what I mean? Like definitely. And years then, later, right? And when we kind of kept, when we met up for coffee to talk about doing the podcast, it was, I think we were both kind of like, there was that kismet energy where like, <laughs> I think we've met each other right? before. But we have to kind of do a little bit of Facebooking to figure out the <laughs> connections there. But I, I think that that's the fun thing about life, how we, we intersect in so many circles without even knowing it. Right. R- really funny, though, that you're from Austin. I'm basically from Austin. But we ended up meeting in New York and then like randomly back here. It's just kind of a funny direction that life takes sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that anybody that's living in Austin is part of what's making Austin what it is. You know, I think that uh, not to put Austin on blast, but there's so much changing happening here right now. And there's there's a lot of tech money and there's a lot of industry, but, you know, this town has always been a creative town. But I think that what's happening in the next 10 years is really defining um, the voices of Austin. I think that we are becoming a major city now. We are creating more industry and th- this city will look more on par with cities such as like Chicago, L.A., but we have so much more room to expand that. That's what encourages me to be here. It's it's not really the the need to like, you know, go get rich and famous, but like to know that you're building something important in this town. Laying the groundwork for yeah. later generations of artists and whatnot. Um, I kind of have... so. I, I think there's a shared love for storytelling between us that I just want to talk about. I have this sort of sense that, and this is sort of why I started, eventually started the podcast, because I am also sort of an aspiring filmmaker or writer, storyteller ultimately, but I've just found that it's so difficult to, and you, I'm sure you can speak to this, you know, find, it's not as if it's like photography or something that you can do on your own, you know what I mean? You always need a team of folks to to make your, to help you make your vision happen. And so that's a little bit of why I started the podcast, because I think stories are such a part of me that like they're inside of me and they just, they want to get out. It's kind of like the alien chest burst. It's like, if I don't, if I don't tell them, they're just going to like burst out of me somehow. And in some like capacity. (laughs) No, I totally, yeah, man, I, they are aliens. They, they are literal alien stories. Face suckers. They are. They, they, (laughs) They take everything from you, and then they like leave you almost sometimes broken and left with nothing. But then you kind of you see it grow, and you see that like what you were creating is is bigger than you. And um, you know, I I I think that the maybe it's ironic or not, but for me at least, telling my stories are like creating um, my visions of children in some way. Then. They're up so a part of my life, but I think in any type of way of story storytelling, you have to let it go. And I think that that symbiotic relationship um, is why I don't um, need to pursue like in some way having kids because like I give everything to these stories. I get it, man. They are aliens. They are, <laughs> um, but they're beautiful though. I love telling stories. I don't think. The world, it would be a good place without it. 
I do. Uh, let's see. God, yeah, I lost what I, I had a great point that I was going to say, but I forgot it. Um, but moving on, I guess let's jump right into some of your experience directing films. Um, one thing I was kind of thinking about was, you know, I was kind of challenging myself to think about filmmaking and what goes into it. And one of the first things that I came to mind was blocking scenes and sort of, so I guess for the lay person in the audience is sort of positioning the, the actors, determining, I guess, their movements within, within the frame, within the scene, how that's going to contribute to the overall storytelling and whatever you're trying to con- convey with that particular scene. So could, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that one of the things of blocking that has helped is really my time in theater. I mean, theater is all blocking. It's just blocking without a camera. But the thing about theater is you have to learn how to create pictures in that blocking for the stage. You have to be able to position them in areas of the stage that will speak to the eye and draw the camera, which would be the viewer and the audience, to that placement. Um, so when it kind of translates into film, I think for me um, that I have in my nature, when I start with my blocking of any scenes or any placement, um, it's a dual kind of mental camera in my head. One side is thinking of how is this going to be shot? How does this look? How am I feeling the tone of movement with the camera and capturing these images? And then the other side is the realist, the person that whatever story I'm telling, whether it's magical realism or super saturated realism, either way, I that realism is trying to live within that world. So if I'm telling something like Chronicles of Narnia, that side of my brain is still trying to understand how does this make this world TikTok in a realist portrait or something that is, say, like a movie about a person, you know, trying to just get a job. How do I make this so convincing? And so when it comes to blocking, I, I have to find the locations. Once I know in some way what the locations are, I can then start blocking the movement now, I don't really, I, I, there are times that I will block maybe for the camera if I, if I know what I'm working with, but I can start blocking a scene without needing to think about the camera first. Um, I, I lay the groundwork. I usually have um, some type of paper with a diagram or I'll just draw a big box and then create some type of diagram of movement. I know directors that use um they will use iPad programs to beat everything out and draw their cameras. I kind of like to get old school. I like to just put pen to paper. It feels really natural and it kind of can scrap things if I don't like it. Um, and then I start just kind of blocking out the most basic but also natural of movements. You know, why would I need to make my character move from this point to this point? I think a lot of directors in film think with the camera first. And they want to see the camera's movements and they make their characters move because the camera's moving them or they move the character into a place because they want an image. And I think that that's fine if that's their choice. You know, every director has a different perspective. But for me, I want there to be some sense of realism in my character's movements. So understanding why they're where they're at helps present a place where then I can then use the camera to then identify capturing the honesty there. So for me, 
placing the movement of the camera is part of the dialogue with the director of photography. Most director of photographies that I've worked with, um, because I think I, I'm one of those directors that I, when I, especially when I write and direct, it's like kind of opening up a guidebook inside of me. This is how it's going to move. This is how it's going to look. So my DPs will tell me the best type of equipment and the best type of, um, way to capture what I'm impressionistically feeling in this moment. But then they leave me with the blocking and the movement to kind of direct them how I want it to feel and move. So there, it's a bit of kind of playing chess and really, <laughs> and really kind of having to be precise. All the while trying to make what you're making that's artificial feel real. So for me, it's really about making the movements of the actors feel very honest and then placing the camera secondary. Um, I don't think in camera movements first. I think in how would this person move in this cinematic world um, and then how can I capture it there? And I guess just to get a little bit technical, so I think some of the common, you'll usually see people paired in like in sort of a th groups of three or two, so like in sort of a triangular pattern. Do you sort of, I mean, I assume that's pretty, that you know, that's pretty basic, but just to give a picture to the audience of kind of like the, there is a sort of like, I guess, tried and true method for yeah. for these sorts of things. There but, is. I mean, I think that if you have three actors, you're, you're moving triangles around. Everything's going to be some form of a triangle. And then if you have two actors, you're moving within, you know, diagonals to, you know, vertical lines, horizontal lines. You, I think that that's part of the three-dimensional blocking of uh, direction. I think what's crazy, though, is that, like, there is a technical term and there are all these very technical directors that will plot out. And I think for me, my part of my directing style now, it's not that... I approach it in just a mess, but there is a sense of the Jackson Pollock painting <laughs> in the sense that like every movement and stroke doesn't have to be for me identifiable within some compound structure of didactic information. For me, it's about motivation of what feels most honest. So when I approach my set, I am really, if I'm, if like I'm shooting in an apartment and the characters are in a room talking to one another and one of them gets up to check their phone. You know, to me, it's really about placing them just in the most honest places and then finding with the cinematographer the most cinematic images that make those movements or make those placements feel um, interesting and thriving for the audience to be captivated. I mean, I think the traditional thing with blocking is if you're wanting to do comedy, go for your mediums to wides. Those are your basic. You want to put them all in the shot together, you know, and then get your close-ups. And I mean, it's a pretty simple movement, though, in film. Like, at the end of the day, like, directing for film, what I have come to realize, and this is, like, what I think separates the those directors that go on to be the Tarantino's and say the um, the Greta Gerwig or the the Jordan Peele or the people that are defining an independent voice is that they take risks in their movement of camera and choices because they in some way branch away from the traditional mold. And then you have a lot of directors, a lot of your television directors, a lot of your commercial directors 
they shoot very structured, which is you always show up on set, you shoot your wide first, then you shoot your medium, then you shoot your close-ups, and then you get in your all your inserts. And it's a pretty simple method. I mean, I'm not going to lie, a lot of what, some of the days on my feature film, when you're getting to day 16 and you're <laughs> exhausted, you just know that you have to follow that method. But what makes it interesting and what makes, I think, derivative of those things that make those directors become the auteurs are the ones that understand that model but can break it willingly because they're looking at the originality of their structure and their score versus like a Marvel movie. A Marvel movie, you watch it and it's very straightforward. Everyone's in some type of over-the-shoulder, some close-up, some medium, and then they have their big wide shots and that's all it is, you know? I think that what what separates those that want to really make a voice independent as a director, and this is part of it, and this is what kind of helped not being going going to film school, was that I didn't know some right. of the choices I was making. I didn't understand them, but they came from my soul, and I knew that somewhere inside of me or outside of me, it was guiding me, and I was making the right choices because my instincts told me I was. And... That, to me, has always been why I've been a director. Because in some instinctual way, it just felt right. So just to touch on, in terms of, I guess, for the audience, you know, watch any television show, and typically you'll see whenever two characters are conversing, there'll be the typical shot-reverse shot sequence. So you'll have the camera will be focusing on one character's point of view, and then they'll they'll speak. They finish speaking, and then it flips back to the other, just to give that some sort of context. But I, I remembered what I was going to say, and it'll be the perfect segue into my next uh, topic that I want to delve into. We were talking about these things being your children, and during the process of filmmaking, it seems like there it's one where you like have to give up. You have to let let someone else look after your children at different stages of the story. And so I'm actually kind of curious, have you have you ever directed someone else's script mm-hmm. or screenplay? I have. Um, in uh, When I did Alchemy, Alchemy was my fifth short film that I directed and kind of my last one that I've done so far. Um, I don't know if I'll go back to shorts. But uh, I Alchemy was written by my producing partner. He also is one of my producers on Earth Mother. We come from way back. He actually... He's a theater director here in Austin originally. His name was uh, Scott Schrader. Um, but his actor name, as he goes by in New York City, is Ian Kevin Scott. And that's his producer name. And uh, Ian Scott is a very talented friend who, back in 2006, gave me my first assistant directing theater job. And um, that was with Zilker Theater Productions. They do the, the summer musicals every year. And so I was their AD on that. And um, Ian and I had kind of kept a friendship over the ten over over the decade that I was living in New York and you know living in Europe and stuff. And um, Ian was one of those people that I just kind of knew that we had a connection, but I didn't know where it was going to take us. And back in 2014, he approached me with a script called Alchemy. He had written it on a train. And um, he was coming back from D.C. to New York City. And he was just like, hey, I've been following your career. I think you're really good. And I think, if anything, maybe could you just take a look at the script? Tell me if you think it's any good. I was inspired by it. 
I loved it. I thought it was tongue-in-cheek. There was a bit of satire to it, but it was a very trippy, psychedelic film. A psychedelic holiday film, if you will, too. Um, and Alchemy was really exciting because it was going to be one of the first films that I did not write. And I was really excited to explore, can I direct someone else's script? I mean, I've directed scripts before in theater, but I've never really directed someone else's film. Um, and honestly, at the end of the day, I think like what makes me a strong director is I have pure vision. I can realize these things, but also command a crew and mediate them and get what I need to get from that day and still move some opportunity of improv in between. Um, but what changed the most with working with someone else's script is the dialogue changes. And when you're writing and directing, you're having, I think why sometimes writer-directors can seem a little crazy is you're, you're really having an inner dialogue with yourself all the time. Half of you is the writer, half of you is the director, and together you have to like coincide. I love that shit. I can't do anything <laughs> else. It's what I am. It's what I eat and breathe. It's just who I am. But it is really fun when you can have a writer and have another human being who sees differently than you do, and yet you guys find a way to collab. So the dialogue has to be, there is no ego. There is no fear. The writer has just as much input as the director does. Ultimately, though, the director at the end of the day gets to make the final approval of the composition of the visual. But I think, at least in my part, you have to really respect the writer's voice because I think the writer has a tone. <clears throat> and that tone is what I have to understand. And so knowing Ian, there was a sense of understanding him but really, at the end of the day, what helped was he was also the lead actor of the film. So at a certain point, he gave himself to the film so that I could guide him. But I also had to be so reticent of who he was and what this film meant to him and why this voice wrote this script. And I think what, we, what came out was something that was really a um, an homogenization of two creatives working in tandem. Um, and we've really explored so much with that film. Um, that's my most, um, you know, award-winning short film. It's been to over 100-plus film festivals. I've, tons of awards have been for writing, for directing. All the production crew has made some type of award. It's a very successful festival film. And, um, you know, I'm. it makes me eager to want to direct someone else's work. I don't always have to write and direct what I do. I do think when I write and direct, it's pretty original stuff, and it'll be something that leaves memorable but you know leaves a memorable moment in a person's heart but i'd love to direct other people's writings you know i've always said i've wanted to direct an x-men movie i would love to direct you know a a movie written by aaron sorkin or you know some people that just inspire me because i think that like it also does help taking the pressure off right you're not the writer yeah, all seriously. the time it's really nice like when i'm like oh i'm just directing that's cool. <laughs> so wait, I don't have to worry about what you're saying. I just have to make it look really good and like make the acting really convincing. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like I would probably be better suited towards like adapting someone else's screenplay rather than writing out. I don't know. It just seems like hammering out the like the little the sort of, uh, you know what I mean? The day to day grind elements of the screenplay. 
Yeah, I think versus like just being able to come in and like the words creating a picture in my head and then making that picture become real. Well, I think the method of cinema is so evolved. We've only been around for a hundred years, right? And cinema is so young and infant in its styles and approaches. And I think what makes cinema interesting enough is the like it's kind of like the dark web you know there's like the 10 percent of sites that you go on to or like everything that we can see in the internet is really not what the internet is there's like 80 percent 90 percent of the internet that's considered the dark web that you cannot like see unless you go into that world that's what cinema's like you know when i grew up into film like yeah i was cool i thought i knew a lot of movies until I started working in the film industry, until I started going to festivals, until I actually took a chance and went and not just looked at the good award-winning Criterion collection, but looking at the stuff that is more obscure, and you realize how much film is out there already, and how unoriginal that makes you feel. Because then you're like, well, I thought I had like this really cool idea, but then there's obviously these other people that came out in the 60s and 70s <laughs> that were making weirder independent films than you were. Um, but you just didn't know about them because they didn't have the the studio system behind it. So um, with that being said, though, I think that uh, that's what we're going to see now. I think that the writer-director method is a specific method that is not like any other type of film. I think film is inherently collaborative. And majority of the films that you see when you have a writer and a director and a producer and all those things shows you the power of the collaboration of film. It's the ultimate collaborative force. It, 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 it homogenizes all these different artistry dispensaries and it creates a unified voice collectively. And that's really important. But what I've always found with the person that chose to write and direct, and this is why I kind of, it, I love doing it. It's like painting. It's like being able to put oneself into the work but then also design it outwardly. And having that in tandem, I think, is what's going to separate making what movies define them as we go forward. That there will be some film artists that are just really good at like making their own paintings. And some people will really be into that. But then there will be other film artists that are just great at being collaborative. And maybe they'll cross over over time. But I think that that is going to not quantify film altogether it will start to separate what is film and how do we use perspective on a collaborative perspective versus a singular vision's perspective. It's still collaborative, not to not deny that, but at some level it is a sense of synthesization inside the one singular voice of that director that's choosing to put out their their piece of their spirit, which is the writing, but then the vision of making that realized. I thought it was really interesting to plug an earlier episode of the podcast, I had uh, Mark Bristol on, and he has worked with a ton of different filmmakers. I mean, he's worked with like, uh, he worked with like Noah Hawley and some of, I mean, he worked with Christopher Nolan and a few other guys. And he was just talking about the interesting dynamic of some directors that were more the writer archetype versus like the the other guys, like they knew exactly what they wanted in terms of camera setups and and things like that. But the writer, I think he worked on Alfie or something, and the director of Alfie in particular was more of a writer. That was his thing. So it's like he was kind of designing the whole visual style of the film in the storyboard process. And I just thought that was such an interesting 
thing and like what a great way to learn how to direct a film like you're doing like dealing with both like you're perfectly set up to like be a dominant like have the whole skill set that you need to make a film i thought that found that was really interesting it it, that is really interesting i think that um that's what makes me really intrigued when i talk to other filmmakers because there's really no right or wrong i mean i think the wrongs obviously if you're treating your actors really badly and you're not (laughs) listening to your crew and being respectful, obviously. But other than like, how do you get the movie made? Like there's so many opportunities to express that perspective. That's what I've always loved. I mean, and that's kind of one of the things that interests me more than theater in my time was that, that there's unique theater voices, but I had found for me working on the stage started becoming a very structured element. And in film, what I loved was being able to be in different locations. That location creates a different wave of energy that influences how you approach structuring the scene or why today, oh, I thought that this was going to be what it is. This is what we planned. But we showed up today and we're feeling something completely different. It's not working what we thought. We, we plotted out. And so we have to think on our feet and come up with something that's 10 times even better. And I, I mean, that happened a lot on Earth Mother. I'm interested to get your perspective since you are also a writer. Whenever you're working on a new screenplay, how often are you seeing the the story told from a visual perspective? Or does that come later for you? Um, I see the whole movie. When I, especially when I'm writing a screenplay, and even when I write a novel, I'm still really seeing the movie. Um, the difference, though, when I write a novel is I'm painting the picture with my entire voice, so I'm constructing the world with every single word. Um, and at a certain point, that visual will illustrate someone else's independent visual from mine, which is always exciting to hear how people interpret my books. Um, but when it comes to writing a screenplay, um, I, I, it, it has to have an idea. There are tons of things that interest me, and I've had, I get like epiphanies when I watch a TV show or I watch other people's work, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Would I do it this way or not? Yeah. And that'll be like part of the inner dialogue. But when I have an idea, a vision of something, something hits me. I know in that moment how much I am, how much I can't do anything else except write that movie from begin to finish. It just has to be an idea. Every movie, every movie that I've written had some idea of an inkling of an image that I started off at. And then the story kept going and going and growing. Um, so, like for Earth Mother, I, a year ago in January, like January 6th, 7th, um, I was driving my fiance to work and I dropped him off and I was hit with this like wave of a thought of this female character, this kind of like supreme goddess, but who was at the same time silent. She didn't need to speak because the power was completely within her. And she looked and reminded me of this um, kind of, she reminded me of this character from my short film writer's block who is the writer's block in that movie, but doesn't speak as well. And I didn't realize that at the time that character was growing into this thing that was going to become my feature film. 
But I was driving and I literally was hit with this character. I saw her and I knew she was being born in the green belt. She was popping out of Campbell's hole and she was coming out of there. And um, I got home and I, full disclaimer, I don't care. I smoke weed when I write. So um, I lit a bowl. I sat down. I put my headphone on, my headphones on, and I wrote. I wrote 40 plus pages that day. Damn. And then... The next day I got up, well, actually, I went and picked up Chris from work because he was at work. And I was like, I was exhausted. It was like six hours later, seven hours later. I was like, I just wrote 40 pages. And Chris is so used to me writing tons of pages. It doesn't really kind of phase him anymore. But he was just like, how are you? And I probably looked like a wreck because I was exhausted. (laughs) But I was like, I can't stop. I know where the story is going. That's great. And, and, And it's literally like, it's like having a flashlight. Once that image is there, I'm walking through the maze and I've got to keep discovering and discovering. And I let that image just grow. And I have other scripts that I wrote just like that, that I thought were going to be. Now, this is the difference, though, is that not every story moves in time that you want it to move. I was lucky that Earth Mother was such a force that I knew in that moment that this was going to become finally my first feature film. But I had two other feature film scripts that I had tried so hard in the past years to get going but they were just not ready. That doesn't mean that those stories won't become them maybe one day, or I may sell them to a different director to do, and I just might be take the writer credit. Because on the other side, I haven't had that experience yet where I just get to be the writer and have a director direct my work, which is something I'm interested in. So if there's any producers or directors (laughs) out there that want to purchase my work, I will sell a script. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug. Um, but uh, on the flip side of that, yeah, I I did not really have um, I don't really have to sit down and plot out the whole film. Now I will sometimes in certain stories, whether it's a novel or a screenplay, I will write tons of prose and journal entries about what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking this is. Um, but I don't structure. I don't need to sit down because for me, it's really the the process of editing over and over and over again, chiseling it down, getting it to its quantified space of this is what this is and this is what it's going to become. Nice. So are you even, like, do you have, when you're even writing a screen, like, do you have, like, I have to do this shot this is what I'm envisioning this, like this type of camera movement or, you know what I mean? Like this yeah. has to be, this has to be a tracking shot. I know exactly what I want. It's this character's moving down this hallway. And I think in my earlier scripts, I did that a lot more, but then I had some like producers and writers that were like, that's a bad writing thing <laughs> to do. You should not do that. That's you just need to write the story and you should leave that for the director or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's like majority of the scripts that I write, I'm going to direct anyway. So like, I'm just kind of making a manuscript. But yeah, some of them I will say, you know, we're tracking the shot from exiting the building all the way to the car. And, you know, I will describe. And I think it helps, though. I think it really does help. Whether the director is going to change it or not, if you're not directing the work, it, it creates some sense of movement for the reader. You know, I don't think all scripts, especially screenplays, need to be so flat and just like dialogue and the car flips over like I like to describe that's part of the novelist in me and I think that that's what's helped getting people attached to my scripts is that 
you know, knock on wood, I'm not a bad writer. I don't think I'm someone that um, is, I could say there are really under, really amazing writers that understand genre really well and understand tropes and know how to write your structured A, B plot lines. And they just three structure play, uh, three structure, you know, three acts and then doom, boom, boom, boom. They're there. They got it for you. Um, you know, that is something that I think is a really talented writer. But for me, I'm, I think I still am a talented writer in the sense that I entice people. I get them interested, but I, I can't not write my voice into the film, if I'm especially if I'm writing, because anything that I write, at the end of the day, it's what I'm going through in my life. I may not be in like Earth Mother, the woman caring about the Earth spirit inside of her who's being hunted by witches, but um, in some level... I am my own earth mother in the sense that I do truly believe I carry a feminine consciousness deep down inside. I think we all do, but it's how you express it and how you understand it. And part of, once again, to go maybe full circle back to what we were talking about, how my sexuality has defined me, understanding my own feminine mystique and understanding that voice is why I was able to make Earth Mother. Because when I drove and got hit with this wave, what was happening in that moment was I was really understanding my own feminine consciousness in myself. And expressing that feminine consciousness through a story about this goddess character who's ultimately guiding a stoner who just got fired from his job, who's really having a shitty day, and he's kind of an asshole having to figure out himself was a lot of what was negotiating inside of me. And so on some metaphysical level, my art is expressing the psychology of what I'm going through. When I wrote Vicky and Johnny, my short film that I took to Cannes, it was about a woman who was abandoned by her father, who was part of the mafia, who ultimately is finding herself 20 years later dating someone that's still part of the mafia and abused by a director and she has to take control of her life and walk away from the bad shit. And in some psychological level, that was me finding the feminine self and understanding my need to walk away from trying to beat the bad boy because my dad raised me loving mafia movies and all these <laughs> things that I should probably not, you know, <laughs> glorified as a child, but I did. And and it creates this symbiotic relationship. So like I part of like why I think I'm a better person today is because my movies helped me work through my shit and exercise those demons like those are what like i wrote earth mother because i was so pissed off about donald trump and i was like <laughs> what the hell is going on with the world why why i didn't so whatever people felt about hillary i was just like why are we going with this man and i was angry and upset and then it made me feel things about my own masculinity and but i was like but this is not what i believe in and to then find this connection to my feminine consciousness and and exploring that through psychedelics and magic and the humor of Austin, Texas and the thrill of the indie epic was kind of how I'm able to, to paint them. They are very complex, um, but then you have to simplify it in order to make sense. That's awesome. I'm just drawn back to the image of the child or the like the alien that's like inside you. And it's like, that's kind of for me too. I think a lot of art or writing is like, it's like I'm trying to have a conversation with the viewer 
I'm trying to like explain something that I'm feeling ultimately and like relate to another person. If I can relate to another person, just one, like if I can connect with them on the level of understanding of some type of pain or emotion, emotional level, then that's powerful because whenever I feel that connection with another individual um, in a film or a television show or just a story or even music, I mean, whenever you have, you know what I mean? It's like, God made this for me, like, this came, This is for me, like, this story is for me. I connect with this so well, and I think, to me, that relationship is what filmmaking is sort of all about, even though, like, obviously you want a lot of people to view your film, but it's like, that in those moments inside your head, it's like, I'm communicating with your consciousness directly, like, we may be in a room experiencing this story altogether, but, like, there's still that one-on-one, that one-to-one communication element of a film that yeah. I think is so super powerful. And the the movies that touch me, just like, I obsess over them, you know what I mean? Because it just like, it feels great. It's like somebody, somebody gets it. Somebody understands me or the vision I have of the world, you know? Yeah, on a, on a collective conscious level, it is literally time travel. It is psychic... <laughs> <laughs> ways that we're helping each other i now is it on some like incendiary level that maybe somebody is projecting this to our head <laughs> i don't know go take some acid you may figure that out <laughs> um i'm just kidding kids don't take acid um but in all honesty jokes aside though um when i watch a tv program or listen to an amazing song and one word or a phrase or some action somewhat clues you into the fuck, fucked upness of your life. That's what art is. It is how we learn, not just on an artistic level, but on a human level. It's why it's called humanities in school. It <laughs> is point. to make you human. And we are all in the shitstorm of life. Like little kids that don't know everything some parents teach other kids better some kids got the raw end of the deal and they just did not figure out life as like ever other people did and some people who even do figure out life were just given some really shitty cards that never able to get out of some horrible macabre of sadness in their life but you know when i was a kid and when i grew up i wanted to change the world and i still do but I used to do it because I thought I had to achieve some viewership of getting people to want to write, watch my stories and hope to hell that it would catch like fire and tons of people would watch them. As I've gotten older, that infatuation was part of my instinct, just getting me to get inspired to do something to be bigger than myself. But then as I've gotten older and I make the work, that fuel is still there, but it's not the same quality. It's no longer bombastic in the sense that i'd want people to like me or un, or or just worship my work because i think that that's really conceited and part of that youthful growth was me needing to let go of that to understand really the level of what i was doing was expressing myself that to be able to express oneself and put my story out there to connect with others is all that it mattered at the end of the day. And whether people connect with it or not is up to their audience viewership because that's their ability to choose. But for me as the artist, the quality of work does not need for me to change the world because I'm some 
pious idea, but it's because of my good nature to want to connect with others. You know, one of the examples, Chris and I have um, been watching Will and Grace on Hulu. And, you know, I never watched all of it when I was a kid. But they, they have all the seasons on there, and I've just really wanted It's a nice little turn your brain off, but <laughs> have an episode. But there was an episode of Woody Harrelson on it recently. And um, he's breaking up with Grace. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. <laughs> um, God damn it. <laughs> but he's breaking up with her, and he tells her, you know, at a certain level, he's just like, we're trying to make something work that's not working. And it can be hard, and you can carve your path. But on some instinctual level, if you just know that it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. And that episode kind of hit me like a week ago, two weeks ago, really, when we were we were trying to move to Los Angeles. And I was, you know, our lease was ending. We were trying to get to L.A. And every door kept closing on getting out there. And like hearing that line when I was so sad and I was sick and I'm like exhausted clued into something on my own level of connection to connect with that, not because of infatuation, but because it's what I needed. And that to me is why we do what we do as artists. It's to help other people find some semblance of whatever your word or joke or escapism or adventure, giving them a clue into their life is important, but you're never going to know that until that that person has that moment and just having that moment. I didn't see that. And I'd seen that episode before, but it never spoke to me on that level. But it spoke to me because that's where I was. Right. And that's what I was going through. And I needed to hear it. And on some zeitgeist collective consciousness, <laughs> whether it is the Illuminati or people that are just psychically doing it, which I really don't think that is, but I think it's energy. I think it is artistic energy working on an organism level that's bigger than us and it's random it has no human consciousness to it it's really about time and place and where you're at and if you're aware enough to be open to those signs speaking to you and that's kind of how i live my life and so it's interesting to hear you talk about that because i think that that's why i love films too because i'm always searching for something that's just speaking to me because ultimately it helps remind me on a reflective level, like a mirror, what you're going through in your life. Man. Damn, you, that was again fire, man. That was fire. That was, um, but yeah, it's like whenever you connect with the story on that level, it, I don't know, there's, to me, it's thrilling. It's like, oh, it's, it's so exciting. It's like a new, it's like getting into a new relationship. You know what I mean? It's like, this is exciting and, and novel and, really interesting i get very enthusiastic about my stories as well i will project myself into them and like kind of lose myself in in the sort of uh fantasy and the the imagine the imaginary what was the last uh story that you feel like lately that spoke to you so unequivocally uh, god i'm sure there's i'm skipping over many because there have been many but um the last thing that really gripped me intensely was was a Westworld that was because it was something I've always like I've been obsessed a lot lately with this idea of of simulation and simulacrum and 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 reality and and so good so that was like the perfect button to press for me at at that moment and I'm really looking forward to see 
where they, and plus also like the idea of like also free will has been something that I've been toying with like the last, I don't know, year and a half or so. These issues have been like super prevalent in my mind. I don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, that was, that was I the loved, last thing that really like got me excited. I loved Westworld. I loved the, the kind of maze to your own consciousness. And I thought that they, they like evoked such an interesting plot line to like get you that metaphor Without it feeling forced. Right, you know? without it kind of being too over the top or like preachy or... Yeah. Not. They did it very, very well. And such a good cast. Oh, absolutely. Such a good cast. <laughs> uh, what's her name? Evan Rachel Wood? Yes. Yeah. But I was also... Her and Tandy Newton. Tandy Newton, yeah. Killed it in the show. Which is, again, a perfect segue because I want to ask you... God, it, I'm just thinking it's so... You wear so many different hats with writing and directing and then the actual production comes and it's like what's your process like for getting a performance out of your actors um i think of myself as a director like as kind of a coach not a acting coach but like a sports coach um my dad's a football coach and so like it was back in like college, I think. My dad was plotting his football plays, and I remember just watching from afar and listening to him and being like, "Huh, it's kind of what I do with directing, right?" <laughs> but instead of it being like, "We're gonna win the game and got to deal with the egos of a football team," and believe me, I think the egos <laughs> of a of a production are far worse right. than the egos of a football team. Um, I started to understand that it was it was really it was motivation. I motivate my actors to understand who they are as this three dimensional being that they're letting their body inhabit, but also who are they just as an actor themselves in this moment? What are you feeling? What is your character feeling, but what is also your actor feeling? Because sometimes the character is being motivated by intention and movement, but then often the actor, indirectly what may be captured by and what the audience sees, might just be the actor being really nervous or afraid, but it's coming across honest. So for me, it's really about understanding them on a fundamental level. Sitting down, having dinner with them, conversing, really being like, you know, ownership. I want to instill in any actor that I ever work with, whether it's the biggest role to the end role. I have always said this. You have to say one thing to me and one thing only. This is my role. Because at that point, I can let it go. I can say, that is your role. And that is your department. After actor, your department of one. Each actor is their own independent department of one. And you have to manage your own self and your own psyche and the whole thing. And and part of that is really having intellectual, psychological debate about who are these people? Why are they making these choices? 
What do we feel about these choices? I know a lot of actors say, well, I can't judge my character. I have to love my character because it's the only way to make it honest. And I think that those are important. But I also think on some level, it's like, yes, that's all true and thrilling. But we're also psychologically telling another character story. So let's take ourselves out of that perspective for a moment. And let's put on our thinking caps and actually intellectually discuss why this intention and why these things are really happening because on some level film is cerebral by nature when i watch a film and whenever i hear other people watch films or talk about films they're talking on it on an intellectual level of by why are they making choices so we as the artists also have to take ourselves out of it i was watching the jim carrey documentary about him living his life as um um, when he did the movie Andy Kaufman Andy yeah. Kaufman yeah Man on the Moon when he did Man on the Moon and it was so cool and it felt really real as a theater as a, as a film production and the director was like oh this is crazy but I, I couldn't do anything else and it's like I've worked with some actors that are super super meta and want to be like method living in the world and I think that that's important but I also do think in some degree though like we should take ourselves out for just a moment not for humor's sake but to discuss, to pull ourselves out of it. And so I like having that relationship with my actors that on a fundamental level, we are consistently knowing what we're creating, that it's not just living in the bubble of the film to the point that we're just living these characters' lives 24-7, but also pulling ourselves out because I think that that's what the camera represents. It's the removal from self, the ability to have some object filming you outside of it. And I think that that dialogue is pertinent to making films. Um, in theater, you have that dialogue, but it's so in the rehearsal room where it's like playing with clay. But on a film, it's like the clay is the day that we're shooting it. So choices are being made fast. But that's why you have to have months or weeks or days of dialogue with these people. Even if I got a cast member that's going to show up that day, the next day, because they're doing a bit role, I would love to still talk to them the night before just to prepare them about what they're about to enter, give them some sense of exposure into this world that is in my head that we're manifesting, because I think that ultimately that helps explain to them and then simplify it. This is what I'm feeling. This is, and, and, and like a coach, like bring up your temper, move faster, you know, not, I think that this is also part of the hard thing. Some directors want to then explain to the actors too too much and i think that those things happen in the pre-production phase but when you're on set it's just like this is what you're giving me and i'm not loving everything but i'm gonna make it better because i'm just gonna tell you like i need you to be quicker with your lines or i need you to you know be snappier or slow down feel the emotion you know talk to me about it let's 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 mind let's pull ourselves out of it for a moment let's bring you back in and it, it really is coaching them it's really sitting there um feeding off their energy and feeding what they're gonna give some actors they have walls up and i can't destroy those walls because if that's what they need that's what they need but then I have to figure out a way to communicate within those walls and boundaries because every actor is so different. Um, they, they each have a different way of learning, of speaking, of approaching a character. And it's important to understand their process because then you can be able to invite them into your own process. So from a sort of practical standpoint, how much time do you so do you are you doing table reads and then 
rehearsals or how like i'm sure with budgeting it's kind of hard to it's all up find the opportunity to to do that but yeah it's it's all up to budget um on earth mother i did not have the the big budget and a lot of my actors on earth mother were from new york and california and all over so they kind of flew in and i got them when i got them but i had a lot of pre-pro they were reading a lot of the versions of the script as it was changing. They they became part of my web. They, um, like I said, it has to come down. When I, like, my, my one of the actors in my film is my fiancé, Chris. And this was going to be one of his big roles in the film. And I kept telling him, I was like, if you're going to do this role, I just need you to say the phrase, this is my role. And the moment he said that this was his role... It became his role. They became invited into my world because they wanted to be there, you know. And I think that that's the thing. Now, part of the other thing that I express that I went through with Earth Mother is my lead actress who plays Earth Mother. Her character is very physical. It's it's it could be considered an action role. She's running. She jumps through a car window. She is on. Her knees crawling through the grass with really no clothing on at the beginning of the film. She's having to fight her way to survival, running up steep slopes. It was a very physical role that most roles in movies you don't see. And it was exhausting. It was a very exhausting role. And it put her into um, a place of vulnerability. And I had to understand and learn. Um, because I didn't get to have enough rehearsal time, that it created a conflict with not giving enough room for the actor to explore their own safety of feeling not just showing up on the day and having to produce this vulnerable vulnerability and produce the authentic emotions. So I, it depends on the film. If I have the budget... I do like, I don't mind rehearsals. If I can, with my core cast, get to move with them. I've had table reads before. Um, but on, in this world of indie film that I'm in right now, at least with this film, I wasn't able to have that because there was a lot of factors. I wasn't getting people into like literally the day before we started production. And once we're going, you know, it's like a full steam, right. like ship. You don't really have a lot of time. Because once you're done with your day, the last thing you want to do is go into rehearsals. Now, I would go sit with my, I would have many late meetings and talk to the actors. I would meet with my DP at many nights to go over our next shotless day. You know, it, it's a never ending job, but when you can get like four hours or five hours just to go home and sleep, you really want to take those. You don't want to like run yourself dead. Um, so I didn't get to have as much rehearsal, but I definitely, though, was preparing them, trying to let them know as much as what we're doing trying to express how detailed the day was going to be, what shots we were going to go for. Um, and I think that that's really all you can do is really just keep them prepared because I think the one thing that I've noticed with film actors and people that sign up on to be a film is that they're partly wanting the adventure because film sets are adventurous. They are slow and boring, <laughs> but they are very adventurous. And um, that adventure is what makes people take the risks of... Sometimes why some film actors don't, you know, there are some films where they literally have no rehearsals. They, the director has just been plotting with his team, tells the actor maybe a day before or the producer tells the actor what they're getting into. 
they show up on that set and then they just are told what to do and they do it. You know, I don't love doing that. I'd love to like build the family mentality. We're here. We're making this together. Let's explore it together. What's a day like on set um, in, ter- in terms of your working style? So like, obviously, you know, for the sort of the audience out there, you know, we're at, you're having to capture, you know, your wide shot, you know, they call it coverage. So getting the different shots and close-ups and things you need, like what, how many takes, like, what's it, how do you kind of figure out like, okay, that's in the can we've got to move, or is it like, you know, obviously the budget is kind of limiting, you know, we've got to get this many camera setups yeah. out of the way. Like, what is that kind of dynamic like for you? I'm pretty, I'm pretty good with sticking to the 12 hour day pretty good with getting my days met um there are some days though that a few went a little later but that's because one day we had gotten rained out and we had to tack on and at the end of the day it was like we only had 16 days to shoot this movie and i had to work to get everything i could get part of what helped sell the idea of the film was like Come join us for two and a half weeks. It'll be like summer camp. You're going to make a movie and it may, you'll get paid, but then by the end of it, you'll be done. And, you know, it, it's going to be a grueling experience. And by the end of it, my team was exhausted. But they, the quality of the work, and it wasn't like we did this for months or a whole month, you know, there was, it was like get in, get out. But my typical day on a film set starts with, you know, depending on what time we're shooting, if we're doing a night shoot or day shoot or day into night, um, you know, we, we always have breakfast first. It's our early call breakfast. Get in for 30 minutes, have your first meal with us, and then we shoot for six hours. And I usually, I meet with my team, my producers, my designers. I will go to every department, shake hands, hug them, give them a kind of rundown of what the day is, talk about the location. Now, typically we've all discussed this the night before, but then you rediscuss it again in the morning. And you, I send, I'm like, okay, how long do you think it's going to take? Now, one of the things that has made me part of what I think is efficient as a director is I spent many years as an assistant director on film sets when I lived in New York City. Oh, nice. And working as an assistant director, it's all about time management. Right, yeah, it's yeah, about yeah. time management, efficiency, and getting things done. So I already know how to ask the right questions to my team and write and go to the right key players and be like, so it's nice when I do have an AD because then I don't have to think as much about that stuff because they have someone focusing on making sure that that that's being maintained but your ad is really important because it helps though when you're a director that's cognizant of those things because for me it's about i need you to get my lit my scene lit within the next hour and a half get it lit get all the things ready production design has hopefully already been dressed from the day before so that we're not really working on that we're just really getting lit and then we're also making sure our makeup and hair is being met so that all of the t- all the pieces come together so that by like an hour and a half two hours after the f- first call we're in production and you know i will usually rehearse with my actors first i love to take them on set but i'd love to show my um designers and people what we're doing um unless it's a very simple scene if it's like he's waking up outside and walking inside i mean i don't need to show you that i just need to get my key players in let's make sure we don't need to light anything this is what it is and then we go in and we go out um but for scenes that really require 
movement and shape. Um, I usually let my actors come in. They'll usually not be dressed. Hopefully, it's like 20 minutes in from the after everyone's shown up, everyone's here, and we'll do a quick blocking rehearsal. I run through the blocking with them, show them the blocking, they pick it up, they they run it twice for us, and then they go back into the chair. And then I will go talk to my actors and go check in with them. How are you doing? You ready? Let's talk about these scenes. What do you feel like this? How's the blocking? Did you feel good about that? Okay, cool. And just keep running. And then if there's like little tweaks that have to be made, you tweak it as it goes along. But it literally is surfing. It's surfing that energy wave of just like, we're here. But honestly, for me, it's about being as direct as you can, being on point and just knowing. Uh, I don't know every choice that I want to make, but I have a good semblance of knowing what I want to get. And by knowing at least what I want to get, I'm able to re- retain the results that I want, but also leave an impression for improvisation and kind of that magic of something coming out naturally no, right. from the day. Right. <clears throat> what would you say in terms of maybe average number of camera setups for Earth Mother? Like what was like an average day um, running through? Well, to answer one of your other questions about takes, um, just real quick because it kind of popped in my head and then I'll talk about no, camera setups. Um, so I love if I can get my actors to get me three great takes. If I try not to go past six, I really don't try to go past give them six the Kubrick takes. treatment, like yeah, 80 or something. No, <laughs> I, I'm not Clint Eastwood. No, not, not Clint Eastwood. Who was it? Oh, uh, uh, David Fincher, who's like 120, 60 takes, blah blah blah. Yeah, I don't need to exhaust you down to that point. But <laughs> sometimes I really love if like I and some direct, some editors hate me for this, but I'll keep a roll going if I love it and they're not really moving around and I can just I'll be like let's keep rolling, keep rolling because sometimes that first roll was good, but then that second one they're just in the motion and they're in it and they're not thinking so much and I can get some extra pieces out of it. Sometimes the second roll and the same roll, uh, I mean the second take in that same roll. You may feel more artificial, so then I know at least the first one I have is better. So it's really, um, I try not to go past six takes. I will never go to ten takes. I don't do ten takes unless, unless, unless it's like a, one of those, like, we're trying to do a single shot. And it's composed and it's literally got everything. And it's the only shot that I'm going to get that I have to perfect it. But I try really hard not to go 10 takes because I think then it just bores it. It also kills you. It loses the energy. It loses too. the energy. We're all just kind of like eating up. And every take takes at least 15 to 20 minutes. And then even if it's like a two-minute take, still you have to set up everything. You have to call roll, blah, blah, blah. So um, six is my max usually, six to seven. But um, anywhere between three and five, I usually get it within the third or fourth take. Um, and then you got to move on and go to the next one. Um, in terms of camera setups, Earth Mother really kind of taught me a lot about camera setups um, because when you work on a short film, because it's short and depending on how many days you're shooting, you're just you're shooting economically or you're shooting expressively because it's a short film, so it's not as many pages, so you may have more time in that 12-hour day to be able to get a, a ridiculous amount of shots and stuff or really play with like the expressive nature um but in earth mother because i was shooting for so many days a my brain starts getting tired <laughs> right after day 
three. <laughs> day four, you're just like, okay, cool, I'm ready. Then once day seven hits, and you're like, oh my god, I'm in the halfway point, and I still got seven, <laughs> eight more days to go. So you're just like, okay, I gotta keep going, gotta keep chugging, chugging, chugging. Um, you start to think on some level just pragmatically. It's not that I don't get thrilling shots and and shots that were original and different, but there are just some days you show up and you're like, okay, this is a simple scene. It's literally two people sitting on a couch smoking weed. I don't really need to spend so much time getting <laughs> right. all this because at the end of the day, what's important is just the dialogue and the performance. So then you start to think economically about what's important about those scenes. So um, in camera setups, you know, I always I always get a wide. Um, depending on how much movement and how big, I may get two wides from two different sides. Um, definitely try and get everyone's single coverage unless I don't really need it. Like one of the scenes in Earth Mother is a pool scene. And it was, let's see, there's one, like five characters in that scene. And um, there was like one, two of the characters that I didn't need to give them close-ups. A, a two-shot of them in a medium was just perfect enough. And, I, and, and it played well because the other characters were more dominant in what was being said. And so I got their close-ups because they needed their close-ups and I got my insert shots. So like I was looking at roughly around, you know, go up to letters. I was going up to letter M. So, you know, it was like 20 different shots. I would say a lot of the days I was looking at 20 to 30 shots per scene, depending on like how big the scene was. But uh, there were some days though, when we were doing some pretty active and large scenes, I was shooting up double letters, like double F, Damn. double, <laughs> double L. And those were some huge days. I mean, I've had some setups where you have to get, because it's not just like, okay, I'm getting this one close up or this one medium, but this character's in this place, but then they're moving to the other side of the room for this portion of the dialogue. So that means that's another whole setup just to cover this dialogue. But it's like making a puzzle piece. And right. I love that. I think that that's the, the fun thing that I loved about making a feature film was the, the ability to be artistic and inventive, but then also pragmatic. Like, I just have to think about what's, what's good. I mean, I think that that's what makes film original is that like, Sometimes it's like it's not all about the camera moving being so flashy. It's just about the performance. And then sometimes it is about the camera and it's really about the technique of the camera. And so the performance doesn't have to be so graded upon because we're just doing this really excellent shot. Um, and I think that that's what's part of it. It's just being kind of cued into to what you're doing um, and being smart about it. Um, so I would say, I mean, it, it, it depends. I mean, if it's like a two person scene and it's like, um, three pages of dialogue, I would say maybe five to seven setups is all you really need. But if it's, um, if it's like a five plus page scene and you've got a lot of movement and stuff, you're looking at a lot of coverage cause you gotta flip the worlds. You gotta take the time to light one side to the next side and lighting's what kills you all the time. Right. Really does. That's kind of what I maybe my favorite part of production is determining the shots and like what what it's going to look like, how I'm going to shoot this particular scene. How do you fight the battle of determining like, I don't know, for me, it would be really tempting to just have these crazy and orthodox shots all the time. But 
that isn't always the best way to tell the story. Like you have to use the cinematography should complement the story and the emotion of the scene, perhaps, and, and things of that nature should be more central than just making a really flashy <laughs> visual piece. <laughs> the Michael Bay movies, <laughs> all flash, sometimes no substance. Um, but I mean, even just the, like the flourish of like, I don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like really just beautiful images in a, in a more like, I don't know, like a Roger Deakins yeah. sort of like, that's, he's one of my favorite DPs, maybe my favorite. He shot a couple of he's fantastic. my favorite films and I just, I love his style. Yeah. Um, this is where it helps having a really amazing DP, you know, somebody that gets it, that literally thinks in images. I think in images, um, and I love movies and I see movies when I think about what I'm making. But I'm story first. I'm all story. It's always about story for me. It's about what is the meaning of this? Why are we telling the story? How am I going to tell it? And why should I tell it? And so those things fuel me. But the people that um, help me understand how to best equate that would be the DP. Because they are thinking about what your story is, but simply just through the film camera. And um, I think that relationship is important. Um, they're like a brother or a sister. They are literally like a twin. The DP is so important. Sometimes they don't get enough recognition, in my opinion, in the, the, the film industry world. They get it in the industry but like how much the the world of people that understand movies like what makes a movie is the dp that's what made it a movie the camera moved and that dp moved it now that doesn't mean that that's what made it a story and i think that this is one of the things that we lack in today's culture with film is understanding the dichotomy between story and film that it is one and the same in the the cohesion of it but that the story follows thousands of years of tradition that's all connected to books, to plays, to prose, to it all. It is all story. At the end of the day, story is what story is. But film and movies is the ability to tell that story or tell whatever you're telling with the camera. And so for me, it's about having a like-minded discussion between the two. And really understanding the quality of what that perspective is. So, like, for me as a director, it's about picking all my paintbrushes. So who I pick as my DP is probably the entire canvas and the brush. He is the one or she is the one that is the person that is going to texturize your world. They're the architect. You know, they are the one that is ultimately... Um, and. <laughs> You know, I, I, I hate to bring in Inception, but like it is a little bit like Inception. Like Leonardo DiCaprio is his character is the director and the cinematographer is, oh, the actress who plays in Juno. What's her name? Ellen Page. El Ellen Page. And I think Ariadne was her name. In the yeah. Film. And she's the architect and she builds the world. And I would say That's that. a good analogy. I would say obviously the production designer is literally part of that, but like the production designer can't truly build the world until the camera is in front of it 
because that's what the production designer is basing it off of. And we're all working in tandem, but the the ultimate director is the world builder that is making the chief direction of it all. So, um, you know, I love cinematographers, man. They are they are imper- they are pertinent to it all, and I I lean on them a lot because there is a level of my technique that I'm still discovering in each movie. Um, but they help fill in the rest. They really do. Nice. What kind of camera did you shoot Mother with? Yeah, we shot it on a Sony AS7R2. And um, my DP, Chase McDaniel, was the one who owned the camera. And oh, nice. let me tell you, I'll plug him. <laughs> he is awesome. He was great. Um, he just, he had the right eye for what I was hoping. And he let a lot of times I would show up on the day and guide him. I want this shot. I need to get this coverage. You know, I'm breaking it down like, okay, so I have my scene. They're all sitting here and they're doing this. So I need to get this, 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 and this. But then he would set the frames and, you know, I would just be like, I need to get this coverage of these people. I need it. Cause I can see the coverage as a director. I just know it's like, especially on the day of the set, it's like, it's like putting the pieces together. It's like, okay, so this is the scene. I've just blocked it. So in order for the scene to make sense, and because I'm thinking in the edit, I'm like, okay, I need to make sure I need to get Chris's coverage. I need to get Dave's coverage. I need to get um, Amani's coverage. And then I need to get a two shot of these two to make sure that they bring them together to intimate, to create intimacy. But then I also need to get a close up of this prop that's being passed over here. So I'm thinking logistically all these like breakdowns. Right. But then he's thinking aesthetically, how am I going to make that look good? And so I can pass that on and be like, okay, so, okay, Chase, we're going to get this two shot right here. Okay, how do you like it there? No, bring it here. Okay, how do you like it here? Yeah, let's do that. Ooh, maybe expose it a little bit more. Okay, cool. And he can handle all the lighting, so I don't have to worry too much because I ultimately, unless I'm expressively... And and, and for Earth Mother, it's a lot of natural lighting. There is expressive lighting in it um, that's, I think, very visceral. But there was a lot of moments where we were shooting natural light because it just was, especially for the Sony AS7... Um, it, it created such a nice, um, desaturated, but yet contrasty world that felt cinematic and, and made the movie, um, not like, uh, not, not revenant naturalism, (laughs) but more like, um, I would say, uh, what's a good one? Kind of like Moonlight. Where even though Moonlight's very saturated in the color grading, the imagery of the quality of the 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 world that's being caught captured by the sensor of the camera um, feels authentic to the reality, you know. Um, so yeah, that that was the camera, and I mean he was a talented talented DP. Um, I had worked with another DP for many years before that, and I loved working with him. Um, but we were in different timing in different places. And so this was one of my first times working with a different DP on my film. And um, I was a little apprehensive at first. But the first day that we started um, was that we were going to shoot in the green belt this opening morning sequence. It was just a bunch of nature beach B-roll. So no actors, really no crew. It was just me and him. And we bonded. And from that day forward, I mean, this guy shows up wearing like a, a tacos hat. He's got like one of them like trucker hats, but it's at tacos. And he's like a ginger, uh, artsy white dude that I was just like, who loves Tex-Mex way more than I do. And I mean, I'm fucking, I eat Tex-Mex all the time, but he just <laughs> loves it. And I was just like, who is this guy? And he's quirky and funny, but super smart and um, intellectual 
to debate with about movies and culture and just somebody that I was like, man, there's a symbiotic relationship here. And I, every movie, whoever I work with as my DP, it has to have that, that literal symbiotic relationship because you're with that person through the thick and thin every day. And that person has their own crew and I have my cast and we have to deal with the producers together. But ultimately it's like, it is so important because if you cannot trust that DP um, or they can't trust you, then it doesn't make a nice relationship for the film. So right now, are you, you're still in post-production, right? Mm-hmm. How How is the editing process going? Because I think this is maybe, for me, I would feel very like, if someone else was editing my film, like I, to me, that's maybe my favorite part of the entire process. So this is where it'd be like really tough to give away those reins and like let someone else. <laughs> See, I could spend hours in front of my computer screen typing a novel or writing a script. I cannot with editing. When I get to, when I it comes to me having to edit, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no. And like, oh my God, I was about to try and edit this movie too. Cause I was like, okay, God, I'm injured. Future. Well, I felt oh. I injured my leg during set. Like the last three days, four days of production, I had like pop tendons in my left ankle and Ooh. I was hobbling. I couldn't move. And I was like, literally it was wrapped up bound. I couldn't go to the doctor because I just didn't have time. We were straight. It happened like right before set had begun. So here I am that day. We're about to do a night shoot. And I'm hobbling, getting it done. Um, but I forgot why I was saying that. But um, I, I was so yeah. So so after we had finished wrapping production, I was kind of injured. I couldn't really do much. I couldn't work. Um, so I spent some time at home, and I was like, well, maybe I'll edit this. And first off, my laptop was not going to handle because it's all <laughs> shot on 4K. So it's 4K images, so it's super high file resolution. My computer was just crashing. It just did not like it. So then luckily, um, the School of Film, uh, Austin School of Film, which is over off of Tillery. Excuse me. Um, Austin School of Film has this amazing membership program. You pay $15 a month. You get access to their computer labs, and they have 22-inch Mac, IMAX, uh, full processors, can run 4K footage. They have all the programs from, like, Adobe to Final Cut to sound, and it's great. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to start going here and start doing that. Didn't do that. (laughs) Um, And I was, like, getting hard on myself, but I was also still looking for an editor, but I was like, oh, maybe this will be the movie that I get to edit because, you know, it'll help undercut the budget. I can spend my time doing it. Yeah, no, I'm not an editor. I love editors, but I'm not an editor when it comes to video footage. And the only reason why is because I don't need it. Um, I think what I do is really good at what I can do. And what makes me successful is that I can inspire a team. Um, so Jimmy Zuniga is my editor, and I love him. He's fantastic. And he has helped expedite this process as best I can. I am working around his schedule. It is aggravating at times, because not because of his schedule, but because of the patience it takes right. for me to be okay with knowing that I'm not <laughs> working on the movie every day, yeah. but still planning and observing and knowing that I'm maximizing my opportunity every time we are meeting on the weekend when we can get together and the time he's giving 
But that solidarity and like I literally just had my last my first session of this new year with Jimmy. We had finished the rough cut in December and then we took off like a month and a half, about a month for him to kind of hang out with his family. Um, and we met up last week and now I'm able to really get my hands on it and go through all the, the notes. And it, every time I meet with him, though, I always know I made the right choice because the quality of it is coming out and it nice. is so, so professionally done and so on point. Um, and that's just part of my process. I think like, as you said for you though, maybe you are the editor director. Maybe, maybe if you, you are the, if you write and you, maybe you edit. I think that like this day and age in film, it's like, we all kind of can do two things. I think like, it's just like, as I've told any young, young director that I'm working with or that I'm, that I'm, uh, um, coaching, I'm like, just know that like, okay, you all, we all have to direct. So check. But directing is such a broad term. Right. And, you know, especially... <laughs> As if, we've yeah. gone through, like, you're wearing so many different hats, it's ridiculous, You, right? you are, <laughs> but then you have to have that one skill that you're really good at. And I think for some directors, they think it's just acting, but that's not kind of the entry level. No matter what, you need to know acting on some level as a director, because your job is to motivate your tools, which is the actors. But, you know, some of those directors become the actor in the movie. So they're directing and they're acting at the same time. So that's their secondary skills, like Woody Allen. Now, Woody Allen likes to write, direct, and act in a lot of his movies. But for the most part, like his skill is either writing or acting. He'll do one of the other or both of them in his movies. Um, but then you have some directors that are like Tarantino that are just the writer-director. That's what they are really good at, but he doesn't edit. He doesn't do any other things. He's just a writer-director. That's his secondary skill. Then there's some directors that are director-cinematographers that they really love shooting their movie, and they love being the director. I think you just have to figure out what that other thing is, and I think that there's some really great director-editors out there that are really good because they didn't write the script, but they know how to edit, and they're wonderful at figuring out computer programs and after effects and knowing how to write. I have the patience to write. I don't have the patience to edit. And that's, that's the thing. It's about being patient because I kind of learned this from Richard Linklater when I was watching an interview of him and he was talking about, it's like directing a film is, it takes incredible patience. And part of the reason why I'm able to survive this is that it took incredible patience for me to write a novel, but it's harder when you have a film and you're looking at the images and you're seeing it, and it feels so close. And you're just like, I could get this so done. <laughs> but it's this like reserved level of patience of working in collaborative terms that I'm okay with. Um, I wish I could edit. It's not that I couldn't. I've done it before. I just don't think I, I give the film the right eye when it comes to editing in terms of if I'm doing all the keystrokes. I love to have my editor take what I have see if they understand what I'm doing, but then guide them and really be like, okay, that was cool. I think we should take this choice. Let's take this clip. Let's put this clip in here. Let's let's bring a close-up in here because then I can still work on the precision of what's perfecting it, but ultimately I'm not having to do every keystroke or know that knowledge because the knowledge that I have is what I can offer the table and it's about meeting each other halfway. What I think it's super interesting about film is it's like the story is being sort of written three different times at different places. So first you have the screenplay writing, then you have 
the shooting and sort of maybe the director's added some of his own interpretation or flourishes. And then you have the editing where the film is being written again in editing. And what I love about editing the most, obviously, is when you're done <laughs> and you've and you have a cohesive story that took place at different times, maybe different months, different, you know, could be different states, yeah. whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, you're bringing all these disparate elements and you're making a unified whole, a unified story. And I don't know, there's just something so powerful and rewarding and satisfying about about that process. Oh, yeah. That just, I just love, I mean. I love it's it. It's so exciting. Like, that's my favorite part is just like figuring out how, all right, like you described earlier, it's like putting together a puzzle. It really is. And fitting those pieces and like, oh, wait, no, I have to turn this piece that way. Now it's perfect. You know, now it, it fits. It's like a piece of music. It is a movement of music, ultimately. But it's a movement of images and narrative that usually get blended by music to create its cohesion. Um, I love music. I love drama. I love art. And I don't want to do anything else. Like, this is, and, and honestly, like, Brandon's soapbox story, it's really what's been hard. I'm having, I'm 30 and I'm still having to pay bills and I'm still having to, and I'm going to do it probably for the next, the rest of my life because right. that's what it is to be an adult. But I'm trying so hard to build my foundation so that I can pay my bills and do the work through my films. And it's killing me, ultimately, not literally, but figuratively. It is killing me because I'm not, I'm a hard worker, man. I've been working my ass off. I will keep working my ass off. But what gets harder is when you can get to that attainment of what you're doing but it still feels like it has to be secondary to some of your survival in life. Right. And um, that's been a tough one. And um, and I bring that up because, like, the process, though, of film is what has been my rite of passage. You know, now making a feature film from where I was when I started in 2011 and making shorts and knowing I wanted to make a feature. And now I'm in this level of, okay, now I'm making a feature. And it is of quality. But it still has a journey. I'm still going to have to probably get a fre a festival debut before I get a distribution process. I'm still going to have to finish this movie before I probably do that. And as much as, like, you know, I have other filmmaker friends that get sales agents in to get a pre-sell. And maybe I will if I meet the right person, if that's in the timing. But when it comes down to it, it's just you know the timing in yourself. And like I could talk about all the things that I hope for, but when I'm sitting in my meditation room with my lit candle thinking and really ultimately kind of quieting my mind down to knowing what is happening inside of me, part of this process is, is that I have to take the time with each step and learn to be patient and enjoy the process. Um when I started writing the script in January of last year, I wanted to get it going so fast. But in my heart, I knew it was going to get going by like May, June. And I got all the pieces together. And I was lucky to get the funding by June. And I had investors like Ian Scott, my producing partner, Brian Cranston invested money, and my um, other producer friend who I worked on an animated pilot that I was a producer on, his name Stephen Kahn, was one of my other producers, investors. 
And um, they believed in me. But I had put the time into perfecting the script, chiseling it down. I mean, we literally had the final version of the script up until like right before we started shooting because locations were changing the sense of what the story was. Every new voice that I cast added a different sculpture to it. Um, and then once you get on production, you're changing <laughs> right. a lot because then you're like, wow, this made sense. But now we're in this room <laughs> and it doesn't make as much sense uh, or, <laughs> or, like the ending of the film, the last scene of our our shoot day was the last scene of the film, and the scene prior to that was a. I had to revamp the scene because some things had changed, and we couldn't shoot the final scene the way it was. But in my heart, it didn't feel right. I knew it didn't feel right, so I listened to my actor, and I changed my script because of my actor. And when I changed my script. It wasn't even about ego. It was about trust. And I really learned to listen to my actors. I was like, no, I brought you as my cast. Not just because I wanted you to be like my human props, but because I really believed in your brain. And you're telling me on a personal level, you just can't do it this way because it's just physically not working to go to this location to do all these things. But this new ending, this idea of changing it for this opened up a door that I would never have seen until I was on that set and until we had gone through this entire process until we were the second to last day of the shoot that I'm like changing it because it just didn't make sense anymore because of pragmatic factors but ultimately they still at the source seep down into the artistic level of why the story was there and so I changed that and literally that night I'm changing the last scene for the next day of the shoot and I send it to my actors and I'm like, here we go, guys. Here's what was supposed to be a half a page is now five pages of dialogue. <laughs> and we're ending the scene. And I need you guys to learn this dialogue. And they were all pros. They, my cast is fantastic. Um, and they learned their lines. And watching it now in the process of editing, which is then rewriting the film. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, I was lucky that we didn't really rewrite much of the film. Um, what changed in the rewrite, I would say, of what made it different from the script is just how certain kind of the rhythm of shots and scenes kind of play in order now. It's still pretty much predominantly the scene structure of the script, except certain moments are a little bit more montage together because some stuff, like, it was better than just to be like, oh, we're introducing this character and then this little girl sees the witches and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's kind of nice to, like, bring these all to kind of this like time transition but um having that final scene and and back in december when we finished the final well when we finished the rough cut the assembly cut and seeing that new scene and how much better it was because it detached it away from the script it took it away from the production it had become its own movie <laughs> and Beautiful. um and it was beautiful, man. Like, it was. Because then at that point, it was like, this is bigger than me. And that's the thing about movies. There was I was I love watching the the, the Hollywood Reporter um, roundtables every year where they talk with the directors and people. And Greta Gerwig kind of, um, she's the one that directed Lady Bird. And she described um, 
how she got into film and she came from a theater background as well and how for a long time she knew she wanted to do movies but like she always kind of felt like movies came from gods she didn't really understand how people made them and believe me it is people making them and they're way more boring to see (laughs) being made than we think they are um but at the flip side of that though there is, I don't, whatever anybody believes, I, I'm a pretty spiritual person, not in the sense that I believe in any beings in the sky. I believe in energy. I believe that like symbolism and energy and your spiritual metaphor of choice really reflects your consciousness and um, your your energy of your own self and like kind of what you're going through. And in some level, these things that are bigger than us that happen in movies are really coming from the gods or from this higher level of energy, this higher thing, because there are some moments that have happened countless times on my movie sets, and I hope they continue happening on all my movie sets, which is that there's these moments that are bigger and more profound than I could ever understand. And that, to me, is the process of film. It is about being patient so that you can let the profound moments happen, because sometimes it is really about your artistic need to just choose the choices, but if you live enough room to not always know every answer, sometimes your instincts and things that happen by chance can make that film so much more just honest and profound than had you like mapped it all out and really was like, this is how it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, think about Jaws, you know, it's like Steven Spielberg. Now, Steven Spielberg has enough money and people that he can make whatever movie the way he wants to make it. But what I think one of the interesting things is like when he made Jaws, how much he had issue after issue with the shark and right. it was breaking down. <laughs> but he still made that movie one of the scariest movies of all time because he let those choices impact him and found the right resolutions. And that's what I do and I show up on set. I have an, a blueprint, I have an idea, and then I'm letting myself be impacted. And, and and I have to meditate all the time in order for me to be that way. Honestly, I really do. I have to meditate in order to be kind of a part of that universal energy. Man, that's awesome. That's so funny, too, because I was just thinking there was sort of like a parallel of, you know, I had like a general outline and I generally do of sort of where I want these conversations to go in, in many respects, but... I leave a lot of room for um, them to sort of take an organic, you know, route and whatnot. But uh, so it's kind of funny that I and I can tell right now, you know, sometimes I've I've had conversations with people and I just know that that was a great fucking podcast. <laughs> and I got to say, I have that feeling right now. And I feel like uh, a couple of times I think feel like the, the hair on my arm sort of stood up. Just that this was this was a fucking great podcast, and I, and I'm glad that I was able to have you on. I think we that's a great way to close it out, to be honest. And I just want to say one last thing, man. I'm 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 super hungry to tell stories, um, not only here in this podcast format, but but visually as well. And like, ah, man, I've just been itching, itching to tell some kind of to do a, a short or something. Like, yeah, there's something. And it's like it. I can feel it's like in my stomach right now. It's like it's gestating. It's there. It, the I've got to get it out. Burst. Yeah, I've got to get it out. So, <laughs> well, I you know what I I want to say thank you again, man. It's oh, yeah, nice to awesome. 
to be able to express um, on an intellectual level outside of the pragmatism and the creative, but just talk about things in life and the process. Um, so thank you for making this possible to express these ideas. Um, and secondly, you know, man, this is a, a fruitful friendship and a fruitful um, creative relationship. So I hope that we can help you make your story come to life in whatever way, whether this is just encouraging or me really helping you with the process. Nice. Likewise, uh, I guess practically before we do sign off, what's what's your next step with Earth Mother? Um, practically, the next step is I feel like I've got about two, three more sessions with my editor to get through my notes. Once I get through those notes, I should I feel really confident that I'm about like 80 to 90 percent done with it then, uh, at least with the picture cut. And then at that point, I um, I'm needing to find the funding. So I'm trying to find the funding to finish out my sound and my music. So I have some people lined up that I want to work with sound and music. But until I find the funding for that, it's really, at least right now, the next step is getting the picture locked. Once the picture is locked, then it will get shipped to sound and um, to the, my composer um, to start developing those ideas. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now my biggest thing is the big things that I need on a technical level is I need to continue finding the rest of the funding to finish the film. Um, you know, I'm trying, I might have to do a crowdfunding. I'm looking more for private equity people that are, because at this point it's, it's a really tight project and, um, it has a lot of strength behind it. It's not going to take much to finish the, the, the piece overall, but it needs that, that, that little bit of money to be able to get the people to be able to work on an efficient amount of time so that I'm not working with everyone's schedules because once you're working on everyone's schedules, those tack on, but the passion's been there, and um, so as soon as we can get that done, then um, hopefully by that point we'll be able to start seeing what festivals may want to pick us up. Awesome. Well, we hope to, we hope to see it out there soon. Um, but and cut. <laughs>